This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our Strike Tape Retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A Strike Tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking windsite owners install Strike Tape today to increase uptime tomorrow. Learn more in the show notes of today's podcast. Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news, and policy. Welcome back to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, number one, we've got a great friend of Uptime, Glenn Ryan, who's the co-founder of Sunovate, is going to be joining us to talk about his new startup, which is a a fascinating uh, new idea and use for uh, PV, you know, solar panels, which not just turning solar energy into electricity, but also to potentially heat commercial and home spaces, among other things. So really interesting. So we'll look for his conversation in about 20 minutes. First, we're going to talk today about Tesla, some interesting new battery technology that they're waiting for Chinese patents to run out. And then they're going to be, it looks like going after that technology hard to bring to their uh, their cars. And we'll see what um, Alan and Rosemary think about the trickle-down effect of that technology here in the U.S. and other places. We'll talk about a really crazy video of a, and you, you've probably seen it if you're uh, present in the wind industry, um, of a hub with blades attached falling into the ocean off of the, jack of, uh, the MPI Adventure jack-up vessel. So we'll talk about the implications there. And then after our interview with Glenn Ryan, we'll talk about the uh, Virginia's uh, new uh, offshore wind facility that Siemens Gamesa is building here in the U.S. and some of the implications there. And then lastly, we'll chat about Google's 24-7 initiative, which uh, Rosemary is, is quite excited about as this uh, puts us further on the path towards a carbon-free future. So before we get going, I just want to remind you, sign up for Uptime Tech News, which is our weekly newsletter. Get updates on this podcast and other news around the web. Uh, you can sign up for that in the show notes or description below. And definitely sign up for Rosemary's uh, YouTube channel, which you'll also find in the description below. She's pumping out great new content each week. So definitely follow up if you want to stay up to date on all of her endeavors. So first, let's talk about Tesla. So, you know, obviously they're really pushing hard. They've had a great quarter recently, and their goal now is to push into lithium ion phosphate batteries. So Alan, I'll just toss this right up to you since you're, um, you know, you're a big follower of Tesla and all of Musk's endeavors. What does this uh, push towards LFP batteries mean for Tesla? And then, you know, as, as they sort of lead industries, um, you know, the rest of the renewables. Yeah, but switching to iron uh, basically low, will help lower the cost of batteries, clearly. And then also, also iron is readily available in, in essentially all countries. So it, it opens up opportunities in terms of battery construction and, and will help lower the cost of the batteries. The issue is just sort of the how fast you can discharge them. So what Tesla is saying is... They, they're going to apply them to the sort of base model cars that are not like the Plaid, which is zero to 60 in under two seconds kind of thing, where they need a lot of energy very quickly. Uh, the iron technology batteries are more sort of long duration, uh, controlled amplitude on how much current it will draw. 
at any one time. So it's a less performance battery, less expensive battery, which is where Tesla needs to get because a Tesla, all the Teslas are relatively expensive compared to the internal combustion engine cars. And in the United States, I think why this is really important now is if you noticed uh, Hertz, which is one of the larger car rental country companies in the United States, if not the world, uh, has picked up uh, is going to pick up a hundred thousand Model Threes. That's a large. I'm sure, a lot. That's, that's a, a lot, lot of cars. cars. I'm sure it's the largest fleet order, and uh, until the last year or two you couldn't even rent uh, an electric vehicle you could rent hybrids but that was rare but to rent a tesla was off the charts not going to happen and they just turned the page on it so they have to drive the the cost the cars down batteries is a big expense this is what they're this is direction they're going to go i also wonder too dan if if and rosemary if the the china factory uh plays into this that tesla's factory in china that they're going to go to that technology anyway because that's more of a standard in China, that they want to just uniformly make that the base car because that technology is already in play in different countries and it's recyclable, a little more recyclable. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, we talked last week about, you know, rare rare earth minerals and the scarcity there. And of course, you know, nickel, manganese, cobalt, they're not I don't know if they, those don't qualify as rare earth minerals, I don't think, but they're definitely scarce and hard to find. And like you said, more regional and not as re- readily available. Um, I don't know, Rosemary, I mean, does this seem like a, a big, is this going to trickle down into maybe like home batteries or, you know, I know Tesla's a leader, obviously, in innovation in the battery and electricity sector, if that's a sector, but... Um, do you see this spilling over into other avenues, not just cars? Yeah, I think that it might already be in a lot of stationary batteries because the um, LFP chemistry has uh, not got the problem with fire that um, some of the other lithium-ion chemistry chemistries have. I mean, I'm no expert, but my understanding is the power walls already already use it. Um, I could be wrong about that, but I, I think that it's at least common in, in home batteries, if not the, the only one that's being used. Because the main drawback with the chemistry is it just doesn't have the power density. Um, oh, and also, yeah, like the um, discharge rate, it, it, maybe it's harder to get a high discharge rate. So I'm not sure that um, we're ever going to see it for really high performance cars because, you know, you, you need that lightweight, you need <laughs> you need a lot of power um, at once and fast recharging is also good. So um, maybe it will never go there, but I think that, getting cheaper models of electric cars that aren't as high performance is going to be really important. And I mean, for me personally, I'm, I'm so desperate to buy an electric car, but I have just been through the exercise and made a spreadsheet and got on, you know, like all the comparison websites. My first obstacle is that, you know, all <laughs> I go on these comparison websites and just find a list of awesome EVs that aren't available in Australia because we have very few available here for a bunch of reasons that I won't go into because they're largely political. Um, and then the second thing is that they are still, the upfront price is still more expensive, Um and for me personally, I mean, I've never bought a new car or I think the newest car I've ever bought is about seven years old. So um, I I think consumers like me, like I, I really want one, but it's just the car that's right for me doesn't exist in electric 
in Australia yet. So I think that, yeah, more effort spent on getting that just cheaper entry point. I'm not that worried about acceleration, to be honest. Like I like going fast, but when I'm driving, I just want to get there safely and with minimal environmental impact. So uh, I think that, you know, when we can get the price point down on, you know, just like boring, (laughs) boring electric vehicles, that'll be good. And I I think this is a step towards that. I mean, Alan, so do do you think... You know, Rosemary mentioned like power walls at home, but that's not a huge market in the U.S. No. I mean, do you see any other applications for this battery chemistry over here? Well, the whole iron battery technology is what Form Energy is talking about, and they're based in Massachusetts, right? Uh, That's a slightly different sort of chemical reaction to to create a battery, but everybody wants to get to the cheapest element. That's your dream, right? That's why lead-acid batteries are so common in automobiles, because lead is everywhere and it's inexpensive and it yeah it's heavy but in a car it doesn't in a standard car it doesn't really make that much difference and that's the driver for all batteries right is the materials are what drive the cost and also the performance so it's a real trade-off if you're not moving then the weight doesn't matter so much which is why form energy is looking at iron technology it just really has to do a lot with the application and and as uh, the, the second piece of this which i think is fascinating is as we play around with the technology, all battery technology, the iron technology hasn't been fleshed out all the way yet, like we have done with lead acids or with uh, nickel cadmium batteries. That's pretty much flat, flat out pulled all the energy you're going to pull out of it. Technology, iron batteries, not so much yet. I think there's still a little bit of, of technology yet to go there. So I, I think they're going to make them better over the next four or five years. You should see improvements still. Okay, so keep holding out, people. Keep keep holding yeah. out. Uh, do what you need to do, but you know, wait for that perfect Model X or <laughs> Y or whatever when it's got the best chemistry in five years. Um, so moving on, uh, you know, the like we said, this um, jackup vessel, the MPI Adventure, dropped one of the hubs. You know, with uh, you know the hub, the three tr- uh, the three blades. Uh, pitch motors, batteries, electrical cabinets, grease pumps, and other components all are now resting happily at the bottom of the ocean. Um, Rosemary, having watched this video, what do you think happened? I heard like a like a pop and a ping, so it looks like some piece of rigging maybe gave way. Yeah, it looks it looked like something like that. I mean, um, <laughs> the video I saw, you can hear. I, I guess it's one of the guys involved in driving the the crane. Um, he. It didn't seem like human error where someone, you know, just like whack, whacked it into the ship. It did sound like something broke and it just fell. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I don't work on a lot of construction projects, whether it's um, wind or any other aspect of construction. I guess this sort of thing happens every now and then, uh, you know, something fails and gets dropped. But um, yeah, it, it was cool that they were filming it. <laughs> That's the, the most uh, know, right? exciting aspect. It's my of dream. This. It's my dream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And luck- luckily, no one was hurt, and luckily, it wasn't over the ship because Alan and I were discussing like how much weight could a ship deck hold, right? Like, could you drop a two thousand pound weight just onto the ship deck and it not go all the way through and sink the ship? Like, we don't know how formidable. Obviously, these are formidable vessels, but I mean, only about half that blade. Yeah, only about half that blade hit the edge of the boat, and the rest of it just went right into the ocean. Yeah, even if they but could yeah, carry, you know, the hundreds of tons that of weight, you know, to have it dropped on there, that's probably not a design load that anybody is no. designing a ship to handle, I would guess. 
Alan, I mean, is that does it look like a rigging error? I don't or just a failure. I mean, all these things are made. I mean, like super high strength webbing, right. right? Like that crazy nylon webbing that can hold ungodly amounts of weight, and then but it's still supported by like you know steel rings and hooks and carabiners and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. Yeah, because one of them just had a manufacturing flaw, a little something wrong with the, the metal, and finally went gave way. Well, the, you know, my first reaction was maybe the winds were high, and that obviously increases the load that the crane is lifting and and that's usually what will cause a crane to collapse or something to break because it's it's over its rated value in this particular case it it can't be because they were making a lift with this system so it must have been qualified usually two or three times the rate of load um that's that doesn't make any sense either it's just weird that you hear something it sounds like something snapped right like ping and then down it comes i the the follow-on for this is going to be really interesting uh just because they're going to have to have a safety stand down people could have been really hurt or killed in that situation and you 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 could have really critically damaged the ship at the same time so it's not only a people loss it's like millions and millions and millions of dollars in damage so usually when those safety kind of events it happened. It, it, it's a complete stand down. Everybody stops what they're doing. Uh, they try to regroup and figure out what happened. And, and that can take months at times. So, so I'm really thinking this is going to be a real big setback. And I, I know we're getting close to the end of the wind turbine installing season up in the northern hemisphere. It's pretty close right now. So I'm not expecting them to be there much longer. And maybe that was part of the deal. They're trying to rush to get some things done. It's it can't, and especially when we're talking about the United States, when those kind of videos show up, it just automatically hits all the safety regulators in the United States, and they'll start putting rules in place about how that can't happen here and how you're going to avoid it. And it's just the consequences are so massive that you just don't want people to get hurt, and rightly so. So th- there's there's a lot. It's just like the truck we saw <laughs> the train right through the the wind turbine blade down in Texas. I, I haven't heard anything more about that, and I haven't seen anything on, in the press. But I assume that there's been some safety standouts there too that uh, we're trying to make things better. So it's just not not a good situation right now. Yeah, and so this wind farm was owned by Vattenfall, um, and they had contracted uh, Van Ord which owns uh, MPI Offshore, um, who was, uh, you know, that's their jack of vessel. So, yeah, you know, these things, it's hard to know how many of these things happen in just daily life because, like, so much construction is going on all over the world, right? I mean, cranes tip over. It happens. Like, these things happen all over. Obviously, once in a while they catch it on video, and it gets more scrutiny than it otherwise would. And fortunately, there were no deaths, like you said. And unfortunately this is going to fall right into the hands of you know like all the right wing in america that wants to point out how evil wind power is right so expect lots of that in the future as well but obviously like you said rightly so the the regulators so yeah but i, I imagine that this will, won't be a long investigation because there weren't that many things involved you know it was rigged up either properly or improperly right and if it was if it was rigged properly then which which failed right you're going to see a a broken piece of webbing or you know a bolt or some piece of connection or you know some some piece of rigging gave way so i'm sure they won't it won't take too long to figure out what the root cause was 
Yeah, but the root cause isn't so so simple as just um, seeing what part broke. It's you got to figure out how it's possible that that part broke. So, you know, was it um, was it inspected correctly? And um, I, I don't know that you can't guess at what the root cause was, but it uh, it's never simple to find <laughs> find a root cause, even if you know exactly what broke. The the root cause analysis is going to be. Yeah, lengthy on something that's so regulated as that as well. It's not. It's not like their root cause is going to be. Oh, hey, we we bought the wrong webbing and um, yeah, and it just wasn't rated high enough. That's that's not going to be it on an organization that experienced and you know where the stakes are as high as it was for this installation. There's um, yeah, it probably will be quite complex. Even if even if at the end of the day it's like oh yeah, the webbing broke. It, it won't be a simple matter to figure out exactly why it broke and how to make sure that it can never, ever happen again. Well, and of course, right now, obviously, they're trying to salvage as well. So a lot of the big components are at the bottom of the ocean. But then there's a lot of debris fragments that are going to end up, you know, making it to the shore, they said. A lot of glass fiber and just chunks of wood and other debris. And what was interesting was that they're urging people to, like, don't touch anything. Like, so if you see debris, don't pick it up, don't put it in the trash, like, don't touch it, which seems just like an obvious, like, they're just trying to stay out of litigation at this point because someone, I'm sure someone would love to, like, oh, there's a thing in the beach. I'm going to grab it and claim that it cut my hand open and file a lawsuit and get a nice settlement out of it. So I'm sure they're just trying to be as cautious as they can while cleaning it up as quickly as they can. To be honest, I would, I would pick that up if i saw it on the beach and take it home as a souvenir i mean definitely <laughs> sorry oh, sorry no. to, to put the it on top involved. of a table yeah. put on a table and pour some epoxy on top yeah. of it make one of those cool like bar tops right. yeah i'd be careful not to get <laughs> splinters uh, from the, the fiberglass but um yeah uh, i think i would like that souvenir so yeah good good luck to them to try and stop people from touching it <laughs> All right, so we're going to transition now to our interview with Glenn Ryan, who is the co-founder of Sunovate. He is also the inventor and co-founder of Bombora Wave Power. So really all-encompassing conversation about just his entrepreneurial uh, endeavors and a lot of stuff that he's learned over the years. And this, you know, this dovetails really well with a lot of our conversations with Rosemary and Alan as far as you know, good engineering ideas and good technology don't always make it to market. And that was one of the things we wanted to pick Glenn's brain about today, um, just because he's been in the industry so long, been a, a founder of multiple startups, um, and just how difficult is it, how difficult it is, even with good technology, with a good premise, and a, even a, a, a budding market, it can still be really difficult to get people to buy in and get regulators and policy in place where you can make things happen. So without further ado, we're going to shift to our conversation with Glenn Ryan, co-founder of Son of Eight. Yeah, so let's let's get right into it. So, Son of Eight uh, obviously is your your solar startup, but it's it's bigger than that. So, one of the big things that seems like a the common way we think about solar panels are they just provide electricity, right? They capture the sunlight, convert electricity, goes through, powers your home or back to the grid, whatever. But um, you're using your startup, Son of Eight, is is going beyond that and saying, hey, we could. Uh, not just collect electrical energy from the solar panels, but also use some of the extra thermal heat that's created to actually thermally heat and cool the home. I mean, that seems like a like a crazy, like why don't we think of this kind of idea? But why haven't why hasn't that come to market yet? And and um, how can you pull that off where you're sending both electricity and heat and cooling into a home? 
So great question, Dan. Um, we originally installed our three kilowatt uh, PV system uh, nearly 10 years ago. And I guess we were initially confronted by the fact that um, in the middle of summer, when we were expecting it to produce the full three kilowatts, it was only producing 1.9 kilowatts. So we set about uh, a way of, you know, I guess, trying to recover some of that electric electricity during the heat, uh, during the summer, uh, because uh, heat is the panel's enemy. The hotter the panel gets, the less the electricity it produces. So we developed a system that sat underneath the panel and we cooled the panel with the air that was blowing through it. Uh, we regained that electrical production, but we also realised that uh, we had a great deal of um, awesome heat coming off the top of it. So we actually pivoted the business to uh, actually focus on more the thermal side. So, so we set up the system and... Um, we demonstrated that uh, on a number of different panels, and uh, then we went and produced a domestic system. So, so now we channel the air from inside the house up through the panels, and we collect the heat, and then we draw that air back through the traditional air conditioning ducting system, and we deposit that back through the house. So it's very simple and very effective. Yeah, and I, I'm not an expert on, uh, like, the Model T, or, uh, you know, when cars were first in development, but I assume there was the same aha sort of moment with the first car, right? Like, they're water cooling it, and at some point they realize, hey, it's really cold when we drive this in the winter. Maybe we can use, you know, the water cooling and, and pump, pull <laughs> something through the car. That's probably that literally that same idea. So it sounds like that's kind of what you're doing. Um, and I've heard you can lift the internal temperature of a house 15 to 20 degrees above ambient. Is that right? Yeah, so yeah, definitely. So that was kind of yeah, that was our aha moment. It's like, well, what, why don't we do something with this heat? So uh, yeah, we we basically have the system goes in open loop or closed loop. So in winter time, when we want to retain the heat inside the house, we draw the air from inside, we push it through the panels, and uh, yeah, typically we're getting a twenty, you know, fifteen to twenty degree uplift off the panels, which uh, you know turns it into a nice balmy summer day as it comes back inside the house. So, Glenn, the obvious choice to cool solar panels typically is to put some sort of liquid in, in a freeze, water, you name it, underneath the panel to, to cool it. Why air instead of a liquid? So, a really good question. And um, look, there are, I guess this technology classification is called PVT, so photovoltaic thermal. So, there are a range of other technologies out there that do use both uh, liquid glycols and refrigerative uh, cooling mechanisms. Um, I guess our original proposition was to boost the electrical output. So we were focused on cooling the cells uh, equally because we wanted to, to basically get that maximum electrical gain out of it. And maybe if I explain, um, like, uh, if you have a hot cell within a string of your PV panel, that's essentially, you know, the foot on the pipe of the current. So if you don't cool them all to that, you know, that equal temperature, the hot cell dictates what, what basically drives the, the current. So so we, ours is unique in that we cool every cell basically evenly. So the difference between a water system is, um, or, or a refrigerative system is they typically have one inlet at one corner of the panel and an outlet at the top end of the panel. So you have a thermal, uh, you have a thermal gradient from one end of the panel to the other. And that is challenging in terms of cell manufacturers. So they don't like you know, thermal stresses or other, uh, uh, I guess, uh, stresses being imposed on their panels. So that's one of the reasons we went around it. Um, so that was, uh, yeah, I guess that was a quite a uh, interesting diversion from existing technology. 
But, you know, liquid will cool a lot faster. You know, what is it four times about four times faster than heat? It'll transfer transfer heat or four times faster than air. But it just sounds like yep. that add a lot of complexity. Right. And of course, you're trying to bring this to market at a big scale. Um, mm. Did that just pose further problems? Because air is quite unique in the marketplace, so within the PBT classification, we are sort of forging one of those earlier marketplaces. Um, you're correct that uh, the, I guess, the energy carrying potential of water is four times higher than air for, per mass. But uh, I guess water presents and liquids present a challenge. You know, the thermal stresses that we spoke of, but also you know, extra weight. Uh, extra fittings to be connected. So, you know, if we, over time, lose a little bit of air, it's not critical. But yeah. uh, mm-hmm. if you lose a little bit of refrigerant or liquid or, you know, especially when you're dealing with water, uh, it becomes a little bit more critical. So, you know, a solar panel may look uh, nice in, you know, solar thermal system might look nice in the first 10 years. But uh, I can tell you from personal experience, they, uh, they look pretty cruddy after the first, uh, after the second 10 leaks and, and the like. So just not a good place for electricity as well. Yeah, so you mentioned at the start that um, you saw a decrease in the efficiency of your just normal solar panels. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it from three to less than two kilowatts? So a huge, yep. huge decrease. What can mm-hmm. you bring it back up to by um, yeah, getting getting rid of some of that excess heat? Okay, so it's uh, essentially how much air we push through the system. So uh, we've got a, I guess, a, a comparative test bay next to our domestic demonstrator. So we have five panel PVT system. And then we have four other panels that are adjacent to it in the same plane. And in that, we test what's essentially a PVT, a built-in PV with no airflow, uh, right through just to a standard tin roof mounted system. And we compare the t- cell temperatures across those. So what we've been able to show over summer is that, you know, the, the built-in PV can get nearly as high as 100 degrees Celsius. So, you know, close to boiling. Um, and even the basic ones that are sitting on a tin roof, uh, they're way up into the higher 80s. So what we've been able to demonstrate through our system is that we've actually brought those cell temperatures in our PVT system down to low 50s in uh, one of our experiments. So we essentially just flood the system with air and we can pull that uh, pull that uh, performance right back. Yeah, we do, we do have a need to drive fans. So there is, a, I guess, an additional parasitic loss, but that's less than the gain that we get from the electricity. And a part part of part of our innovation is actually how do we you know, get that uh, relationship between extra power required for the fan versus the extra power we get for electricity. So that's part of the innovation that we've developed as well. And then, in, in addition, to like the the heat, obviously, you know, it's producing heat. You're you know sweeping that heat away with air. It makes sense that you can then use that waste air uh, to heat a home. But can you explain that? It sounds like you can cool a house as well, which just sounds incredibly counterintuitive. I mean, how does that end up happening when you've got solar rays heating up a panel and yet you can take cool air and cool home with it. So it, it was, uh, I guess, one of our Model T moments there, Dan, is, um, you know, we used to have the our little experiment sitting out there, um, you know, and we'd go out and do our tests each day. And then uh, one morning I, I went out there a little bit earlier than I normally would and this, all this condensation was streaming off our PVT panel, but it wasn't streaming off the third panel that was kind of like an open back panel. So we went, well, that's interesting. And I guess, you know, we started through observation, realizing that overnight, um, you know, we learned, read a bit more about night radiative cooling and, you know, you kind of wonder why your 
car has all this dew on it in the morning or windows freeze over and it's not freezing, well, you know, there's a whole ancient art around um, you know, ice making and uh, and all this sort of stuff that the ancient cultures used to use. So they use this phenomenon called night radiating cooling. And uh, PV panels are actually well suited to that because they're black. They radiate heat to space. So we've measured uh, our cell temperatures uh, to be up to minus eight degrees Celsius uh, below ambient. So if you've got a really clear, you know, one of those crystal clear skies, you know, when you walk out at night at times and you feel your kind of, you know, you know the heat just sinking out of your head, that's that's kind of night radiative effect. So, you know, really interesting phenomena. So we just took that to our advantage. So the cooling aspect of our panel uh, happens at night time. So, you know, during the daytime, we can capture the heat for, you know, or below the summer. It, it depends. You probably don't have a huge heating load, so you might want to heat your hot water and your pool, but you don't want to heat your house. So any excess energy we will dump, uh, you know, to atmosphere. But uh, at nighttime, we just leave the system running at a, at a slightly lower rate, and we bring the cold ambient air in, and we push it through the panels. It gets subcooled. And then we distribute that cold air back through the house. So you get fresh air and you get it cooled. So essentially, uh, like we have done over the last, um, the last year or so is, uh, we essentially don't need any external heating and cooling because we run with the uh, passive nature of the, of the system. And then you mentioned heating water. You can also heat water with this. Is that right? Yeah. So basically it's like a, a drafting gate of what you want to do with heat. So, you know, we can we can go straight to space heating without any extra heat exchanges, just a fan. Um, but then we can also uh, push that hot air over a coil. So that coil might have uh, water in it, which we can uh, heat up. So just just like a, a radiator in your car, coming back to Mr. Model Mr. Ford's Model T, um, and also we can also use the evaporator of a of a heat pump. So. Yeah, we just pass that heated air over the top of the coils and we extract the energy that way. So, so Glenn, I want to shift gears a little bit. So you are the founder of Bombora Wave Energy. So this is not, you know, your first uh, venture. You've been a serial entrepreneur and, and Bombora has been successful and um, you're still a, a founding shareholder there. Um, can you tell us, like, we, one of the things we're going to get into today is, you know, with all these great ideas, not all of them make it to market. Like, it's not that simple where you just have a good idea. Uh, Rosemary gets this all the time on our YouTube channel. People send her, mm. you know, engineering drawings of, hey, I've got a new wind turbine. Um, and it, like, might work on paper, but mm. is this actually viable in the market? Is it going to be able to take off? Is it going to be able to be mass produced? Like, who's it going to fit in the in the market? Are people going to adopt it? Um, so I know you had a lot of growing pains with, with Bombora, and it's, and it's really done well now. Um, but what have you learned from that? Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with Bombora and, and what, what that's meant to you in this, uh, this second big venture? Okay. Oh, look, it's been a fantastic learning experience. And I had a little wind turbine uh, design even before Bombora, which will... Um, Don't show it yeah, to Rosie. Quite... She'll, man, tear, she'll tear you to shreds. Yeah. It's vertical well, access as well. Oh, no. Yeah, oh, no. She'll yeah. set fire. She'll oh, set no. fire to it. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. Well, and, and Rosie, I guess we'll, we'll understand. So I guess even with Bombora and this little wind turbine idea, um, uh, I guess the first thing we learned about was convergent technology. So whilst I was developing that little wind turbine, um, the biggest wind turbine available was 330 kilowatts. By the time I'd finished my R&D project, 
one year later, the biggest wind turbine was 1.6 megawatts. Wow, that's crazy. I guess I suddenly realized then that, um, you know, you, even if you've got a better widget, you know, sometimes it's timing to market. So I, I will say that my widget wasn't better than the horizontal axis. It was still good, but they had the best scaling potential. So I kind of took that into Bombora. So what was interesting there is, I guess, yeah, I've created solutions for the market that hasn't actually asked for it yet. So what I saw the potential with Bombora or wave power in general, so I actually started with the idea of wave power. I didn't have a design. Um, and I went, well, this would be good to support wind and solar. So when the solar's weak during summer um, and we know the waves are really strong in winter, um, you know, they, you know, wave and wind kind of was quite complementary. Uh, wind, wind is you know, seasonal, but probably to a lesser degree. So I, I used to say that's like the third leg of the um, renewable energy sort of supply matrix. Um, so that was that was kind of where we started off there. And uh, I guess once we realised that you know, wave had this potential to solve future energy mixes, then we set about the technology. So, but yeah, look, it's has been really challenging. Uh, like I said, we, we, I guess, as an engineer, uh, my learning through Bombora was that, um, you know, you don't engineer the, the hell out of it. Okay. So, um, we learned that customer is king. Listen to the customer in this experience with now with Sunovate. And we've been really cautious about not spending too much more on the technology, but actually focusing on the market and the, and the customer to, you know, you only get really one chance to cross that valley of death you know very few companies get the second chance to go so you know that's that was kind of our learning out of the bombora experience is that um you know and that's a big deep tech you know that's you know they've spent uh yeah 20 plus million dollars on that technology so far well, and that, and that reminds me of kind of like, you know, the Apple sto uh, story, you know, like Steve Jobs was is obviously a legendary, um, you know, businessman. And, you know, when he brought the iPod and the iPad, like these were product markets that didn't exist. Like there was no market for a tablet. There was no MP3 player at that point. Or maybe there were, but his was fundamentally different, right? He was saying, hey, customers, I don't want to give you what you want. And of course, I know that that old uh, quote attributed to Henry, Henry Ford. I don't know if it's actually attributed to him, but he said, you know, if I'd given what the customers wanted, they I would have given them a faster horse, right? I don't know if that's, <laughs> I've heard mixed uh, reviews of that, if that quote's actually attributed to Henry Ford, but the same thing, keep going back to the Model T, you know, trying to engineer something that people don't need, know they need yet. Is that kind of that's what you right. meant with, with Bombora Wave, that the market didn't know that it wanted it or needed it or that it could be a viable technology? Yeah, absolutely, because um, like, it's, I guess, the epitome, epitome this has got to come through this year with um, Microsoft and uh, and Google coming out just recently going, well, uh, look, we've achieved net zero, but we're not net zero every hour. So, you know, some classic Google graphs come up where they, they're just trying to remember where they are 40% 40, 40 of the time they're still using black energy when they, you know, like, basically look at it temporarily. So, you know, what we're saying is that's where the sort of the fit starts to come with the Bombora technology. Yeah, working in the ocean is, you know, it's an horrendous environment, so you have to be survival, and it's not going to come as cheap as sticking a, you know, a panel on a roof. But, you know, when you start to time value that energy, it becomes, you know, that's when it starts to drop in the slot. So as we as we have experienced here in Western Australia, you know, we've got, you know, as much as 
some of our federal policies quite backward. We've got uh, a policy that was developed in 2001, uh, which is called the Renewable Energy Target. And we're still working on that policy framework today. And that's actually allowed us in Western Australia to have the, you know, during the middle of the day, the biggest power station is rooftop solar. So we have over a gigawatt in a system that is at times getting down to, you know, grid facing, you know, less than a thousand, less than a gigawatt itself. So, you know, rooftop is the predominant generator now. So we're now faced with, uh, turning, turning wind farms off during the middle of the day and even some big solar farms because we're getting negative prices. So the, the coal, the coal's just getting wedged and it can't, you know, you know it get, it's got no more demand to soak it up into. So they're using pricing instruments to, to basically keep the lights on due to coal and, uh, and, and it's shutting down wind and solar. So that's kind of where we're at. So when you look at that at next evolution, if we're trying to get rid of that, that coal system out of the, you know, we need this diversity and renewables. So, you know, energy storage will come in and play, but you've got to think of the system as a whole. So I guess that's, yeah, now we see where Bombora will fit in the, fu- you know, in the future energy mix and people will start to pay a price for that. You know, 15 years ago, it was just a little bit too early for that conversation. Yeah, Glenn, I, I think you raised some really good points uh, just in the sort of the venture entrepreneurial spirit of of trying to create technology where there's a lot of government oversight it's okay. a that's makes being an an engineer and a, an entrepreneur just adds levels of difficulty to it because you're trying not to convince maybe a customer you're trying to convince a government and governments move slowly and make a lot of wrong decisions yep. so if you're in that marketplace i think it's taking a different approach which is hey we have this sort of existing technology which has been blessed by the the government let's make let's make it better and is and is does that clear some of those pathways for you as a business oh it does yeah yeah i mean more the commercial pathways so we still so you, you raise very good points so with bombora we had uh, you had uh, OEMs, you know, the scale of the business we needed, both policy support we needed, you know, grants to yep. get the early products going through. But ultimately, you need a long-term yep. revenue stream. You know, so you need right. certainty of if you deploy and get to scale, where are you going to still make money or where is your investors or your project developers still going to make money? So, you know, here in Australia, we've got wind and solar. Uh, but we've got a very, you know, it's a, a fairly linear certificate. They get the same certificate, so there's no discrimination. So Wave in its early days is never going to compete with wind and solar. So so you're only, you know, you're pricing yourself against their electricity and their certificate price. It's never going to happen. But in the UK, they have what's called, a, I guess, a mechanism, which is contract for difference. And then they break that up into portfolios. So you know, they have an offshore wind market, they have an onshore wind market. So they've got different classifications that you can compete again against your peers. And that means so ah. you may get one or two certificates in there for your wave technology. So suddenly you've got a guaranteed revenue stream and you're not competing. You know, your, rev- your, your revenue is not at risk from other technologies or policy, you know, changes. So, so that's... Right. So yeah. that's so that's what, so we all, you know, it actually, you know, we need all those things happening at the same time. Yeah, you know, I've 
your, your comment about Sunovate, well, you know, with all those learnings there, I've tried to try and prune as many of those other externalities that I can <laughs> that I can sort of you know, <laughs> control. So, um, you know, we're looking. You know, we still uh, have got challenges. Um, so in Australia, we don't have a renewable heat target. Um, uh, the British have just come out and announced that uh, you know they've got a they're basically their roadmap for you know uh, for their domestic housing stock. So I had a lovely read of that yesterday, and I did a couple of word counts. And um, solar featured, solar thermal featured three times, and hydrogen featured three hundred and forty-one times. So you know, it's kind of like so we still have, you know, those challenges of actually, you know, we have the technology here in today. Uh, we don't have to go invent, you know, sophisticated hydrogen gas boilers and things like that. Yeah, yeah, you know, we just right. got to work out how we integrate those into the system. That's actually something that I, I was thinking about the whole time that you're talking. It's it's interesting that, um, yeah, you've developed in Australia. That makes sense because there's so much rooftop solar in Australia. I know mm. more than, I think, like a quarter of houses have rooftop solar. But on the other hand, heat is not something that we talk about too much in Australia. Mm. And when we do talk about it, it's mainly because, you know, like a gas distribution company has um, invested in, in hydrogen. That's the only the only thing I ever hear about in Australia, even though we've probably got the least challenging renewable heat problem out of anywhere in the world. Um, so I was just wondering how, how you see um, Sunovate um, competing with yeah, with hydrogen, with heat pumps, um, how how will it fit in? What what um, what places is Sunovate's technology going to suit, and compared to some of those others? So uh, I, I spend a good part of my time. I guess people say I bash hydrogen. I, I think hydrogen has a very good place in our future energy mix, but it's not heating our homes and cooking our food. You know, it's displacing existing hydrogen requirements, fertilizers, minerals processing. So, yeah, I try and say, well, look, if, if I had a dollar, why would I, you know, kind of burn it, you know, and you're know, taking all this <laughs> high, high en- entropy, high entropy product and really just devaluing it. So we, we say the same with electricity. So, you know, why take um, a premium product which can give you mobility and give you drive your appliances and computers like we are today? Um, why, why go and destroy that into heat? So I guess so. Th- we're starting trying to move that conversation. We, we also uh, are big proponents of heat pumps, but what we say is uh, with our technology, you can have a much smaller heat pump. Uh, so, you know, we just use the heat pump for the topping cycle, not doing all the cycles. Uh, when you get to when you get to like a European or a, a very cold climate where they're all pushing to go heat pumps, you know, we know the first thing that's going to happen, well, we talk about emerging problems that people don't see is, that electrical network is going to get stressed big time because, you know, they're going to put big heat pumps, they're going to have car charges. You're moving, I guess, what the global energy carrier, the electricity carries about a quarter of the world's final energy demand. So you're asking it to basically go to, you know, four, three or four times its existing capacity to service all these new customers. So, yes, we'll get smarter about how we uh, dispatch those loads. So in terms of timing, you know, we will, you know, we'll have, um, uh, you know, timers and, you know, demand map responses. But we're still, you know, we're still challenged with getting that volume into those services, you know, those com- domestic heating and commercial services. So so I guess coming back to Rosie's question there, you know, in Australia, uh, surprisingly, when we did our research, the uh, the heating demand, especially for 
you know, Melbourne and Canberra and all that, you know, it's, it's actually higher than, you know, some of the high altitude European countries because essentially our houses leak in their poor performance. So, you know, we have massive heating loads. Yep, I I know that very uh, that problem very intimately. I just moved from Denmark to Canberra, and I have frozen the whole winter. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's such a, a common, contrast. A <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and then in some in summer you'll bake, and um, yeah, that's that's uh, I guess part of the challenge. So we have huge opportunities here in Australia, but uh, without targets or these incentive programs, uh, we're happy to make gas systems more efficient but we're not actually happy to transition across to you know, renewable heat. Do you think that part of it is be- yeah, do you think that part of it is because it doesn't need a huge like it's not some really out there space technology kind of level innovation it's you know like the way that you describe it it's quite simple um it's you know I can imagine how it works after you describe it in a couple of minutes. Do you think that that's part of the problem? Like I, I noticed this a lot with all kinds of renewable energy um, technology reporting that it's it's the really out there ideas that capture people's imagination and get them excited. And I wonder if that's part of it with hydrogen. That it's like, wow, you know, it's this huge challenge. We need to design all these new things. How exciting. Do you think that that is more appealing for uh, an investor to see some huge technology um, gap that, you know, this new company is going to provide, do you think it actually handicaps the, you know, more mature, more robust um, technologies? Absolutely. So I guess I'll have a little analogy around this. You know, it's the George Jetson versus Fred Flintstone. You know, George <laughs> Jetson you know, has the technology and the buzz and the future and the, all that excitement. You know, Fred Flintstone, he's still, you know, it's, it's you know, basic technology gets him from A to B. Um, but it's not sexy. And, uh, you know, I find, you know, uh, I guess there's, there's, there's two elements. I think part of it is the policy and the, you know, the, I guess the camera moment. So, you know, you have our, our policy makers wanting to get in front of, you know, highlighting these great, you know, hydrogen and, you know, it sounds interesting, sounds complicated, you know, lots of technical stuff. Um, and there is a, a big push from the, I guess, the natural gas manufacturers to, to, I guess, continue their product stream, which is through the blue hydrogen or clean hydrogen, as our government likes to call it. Um, but, yeah, I think there is that really, like, it's that simple, you know, okay. Uh, it's kind of, it gets moved over quite quickly. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, and, and it's, uh, I guess, what we found is, you know, as people walk inside our house over wintertime and they go, oh, that's nice and warm, you know, they connect with the service. So they connect with, Oh, a nice warm house, you know, thermal comfort. They don't really care what's up on their roof. So I guess that's why we've taken a bit of more of a change in tact. And, you know, we talk about the customer um, and what they experience as opposed to kind of the technology. So, you know, as an engineer that's been trained in solving problems and, you know, you know <laughs> all this stuff, it's, it's, it takes a little while for you to uh, reconstruct your thought processes. But, um, yeah. That, that that's fascinating, Glenn. I I really like that to hear that because rarely do you hear uh, engineers talk about basically building confidence and selling a product. And and I think you have a really great product to deliver, right? And I, I it, it comes down to building that sort of relationship, that confidence that this works. Mm. Like it doesn't have to be complicated to work. And there's engineering involved, clearly. But does the user really care? I mean, the users don't care how their iPad works. They just don't care, yep. right? 
so it, it comes back to is it reliable does it do what you say it's going to do mm. and is a, a a value proposition for me exactly. if you can check those boxes then i think the product will succeed regardless of how quote unquote technological the product is it doesn't matter anymore mm. and i think that's where you really find a sweet spot is because Everybody can relate to losing power at a, a PV panel. Yep. And that, that's just, you know, that's one of those depressing things. You know what's going to happen. There's nothing you do about it. But you're saying, wait a minute, let's rethink that. Yeah, you don't have to lose that power, one. But two, we can be much more efficient and make your home much more comfortable without a lot of complexity. That's a great that's a great product. I think that that makes that just makes Sunovate such a basically a leader in that market space, and I think that's just really going to push the market. Yeah. Well, one one of the things we work on is just spatial constraints, so uh, and energy independence. So you know, I've talked a lot about the macro and the and the, the grid scale stuff, but um, you know, what's really interesting for us is that um, you know, just through our very basic system that we've got here, we don't have a domestic battery, but we've got a, a now little EV. So now we're managing our portfolio of just a simple uh, three kilowatt grid system plus our PVT. And, you know, we're freeing up that electricity that may have been used for heating uh, for our car. So so suddenly within this constrained portfolio, we're managing our, our energy budget. So the issues about time of use and stuff like that, like I know in the middle of the day, I just set the car timer from about 10 to 2 and I set the rate of the timer and... It's done, you know, and, and I suck up all that cheap energy that's going off to the to the grid that they're they're challenged with and um and I and I got free you know, free energy for my car. And so Glenn, um one of the last major questions I have is uh, you know, what's your market? So you've been talking about heating the home, but it but it sounds like you're gonna go after more of a commercial market. Um, kind of from like a simplistic, uh, f- from a standpoint of, of keeping your product simple and easy to install and easy to scale. Um, so can you talk about like commercial or home and what are you guys focused on in, in the future as you really start to launch and, and get out there? As probably all of you know, that every technology goes through a learning rate phase. So, you know, we are bespokely manufacture, we're expensive, but we've got to scale to market quickly. And I guess we realize that we probably won't have the same, I guess, uh, just you know, focus on our technology as wind and solar have in the past in terms of you know, massive R&D. So we've got to work out how we get there fast. So we've actually, we, we enjoy the domestic market, but it's, how would I say, um, you know, the cost of customer acquisition and the complexity of smaller projects to scale uh, is problematic for us to start with. Although there's an attractive market there for early adopters, but we want to get into the hundreds and thousands of panels really quickly. So uh, so we're really looking at uh, what we call the district heating market or uh, larger platforms. So we can basically you know, scale the technology really quickly, get lots of panels, lots of frames, and uh, and get that market traction at scale. And once we've got that adoption, we can then you know, gain scale and manufacturing, do all those learnings, and bring our costs down so that we can actually make the product uh, really competitive with gas long-term in the domestic sense. So... That's our, our scaling opportunity. Yeah, we'll start in the hundreds to megawatts sort of projects. And then uh, once we scale, we'll come back to those domestic opportunities. So, and is that because, you know, if you're going to put this on one house or two houses, you know, different roof shape, different, you know, size, const- uh, you know, they don't need nearly as much wattage. That probably just becomes more of a complex, you know, takes more time, takes more 
uh, architecture to get that one system built versus uh, if I'm hearing correct, you correctly, it's if you throw this on a, a you know, huge commercial building, it's a thousand of the same panels, you know, in a, like a modular, just line them all up, very simple, ship them all out and just, you know, run down there and install them. Is that, is that kind of the difference? It's exactly it. So we only have to deal with you know, smaller amount of customers, uh, smaller amount of engine. So an engineer can deploy yeah, you know, that makes sense. The, it's basically the deploying of the effort. So, you know, it doesn't take much more effort to do a commercial system than it does, you know, two or three domestic ones. So, yeah, that's 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 kind of the tactic we've taken there. Okay, so you mentioned that um, one of the early markets that you want to chase is district heating. And where I was living in Denmark, we had district heating um, from a yeah, combined heat and power from actually it was mostly burned garbage that they, you know, send the, the heat out. But obviously, you need the heating in the wintertime. Um, and, you know, you're making, you're making the heat all year round. So do you know how they deal with that and how that will relate to, you know, what you're planning with district heating? It was certainly, and that's why we're focusing on both probably Denmark, Germany, and the Netherlands because they actually have yeah lots of district heating systems, but they've also got large seasonal storage solutions. So, you know, one of the I guess the things we need for a technology is to make sure if you're producing the energy that you actually get to sell it. So what happens in Denmark is they've got these solar fields that they charge these big uh, pit storage systems. So many many, many swimming pools in size with an insulated cap on the top of it. So over summer, they will charge that uh, that big thermal battery um, to, to meet that wintertime demand. So as they get cloud cover or sustained periods of, uh, of uh, you know, basically no solar isolation, they can draw upon that big thermal storage system and, and basically still deliver the service of heat and thermal comfort. So... For us, that's a great market because uh, we can take our technology there and we can sell pretty much every kilowatt hour of heat that we produce can go into that into that market where, you know, say, for example, here in our domestic system over summer, we're long on heat, so we just dissipate that to atmosphere. So, you know, it's kind of, you know, that's that, you know, if we had a pool, we could heat that with that. But, um, you know, we're trying to maximize the thermal production. Well, Glenn, this was an awesome conversation. We really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. This was, uh, you know, like I said, it, it's one of those why haven't we done this sooner kind of technologies already exists, already a great framework for it. People already really trust solar. Um, so I think it's really, really impressive what, you, what you're doing. Um, how can people follow up with you and Sunovate? Yeah, excellent. Well, thank, thank you both Dan, Rosemary and Alan for the invitation. Um, look, uh, you can follow me on LinkedIn. That's my social uh, profile. So you'll You'll be able to find me at Glen Ryan at Sunovate, uh, and also our webpage www.sunovate.com.au. And as always, we'll link in our description below, no matter what platform you're listening or watching on, so you can connect easily. So just open up the show notes, and you can click through to follow up with Glenn and learn more about Sunovate. Glenn, thanks again for coming on the show. Oh, thank you very much. My pleasure. So again, we want to thank Glenn Ryan for coming on the show. Uh, be sure to follow up with him. You'll find links to Sunovate and to connect with him in the show notes or description of this podcast, wherever you're listening. We appreciate his time. And again, great conversation. Uh, you know, a lot of the intricacies of being an entrepreneur in this space. So we're going to shift to um, Siemens Gamesa is making a new offshore wind farm in Virginia here in the United States. And this is a uh, a $200 million facility, and they say it will create approximately 260 jobs. 
So, Alan, you've been following the, the U.S. policy uh, pretty closely. Yeah. What do you think this means um, to get a, a facility here right in the uh, – I don't know if Virginia is still the northeast or not, but, you yeah. know, the, the east coast right in the center. It seems like a good place to, to put one. It is because it's right in the middle of all the activity. You can go north and go south, and there will be wind turbines out in the ocean there shortly. Uh, the two hundred million dollars is a, a sizable investment for Siemens, and I, uh, the I think the state and local governments are going to be supportive of that also in terms of financing and putting the roads in and putting you know, the power stations in and all the things that are needed to actually create that facility because there's just there's just a lot of infrastructure that has to happen. But this is going to be the first of many, from what it seems. Uh, LM's obviously going to have to be building a facility somewhere. Uh, and uh, TPI, which is a big blade manufacturer out of Rhode Island already, they're pretty close to the shoreline right now. So they kind of have a their foot in the door in terms of being able to make offshore uh, wind turbine blades. You'll, you'll see a lot of activity out of, out of them. Obviously, it's the, the Vestas is yet to be known uh nordex is uh, still unknown a little bit and if there's going to be any chinese players which there most likely will have to be uh at some point you think that they're going to want to try to negotiate something there we'll see how it plays out because there's a lot of politics with that so there's going to be a lot of more activity up and down the coastline for the states it's i don't know if it's like this in australia but in the you know obviously the united states there's 50 independent states so they can all sort of vie for that business opportunity that's what's happening is that they're trying to drive the jobs into their state and localities because it's such a huge influx of cash that you're going to make a lot of really uh, beneficial deals for the companies to bring those jobs in so a lot's going to change in the next year or two up and down the shorelines yeah, this strikes me as a small amount of jobs, though, for a two hundred million dollar facility. Uh, maybe I'm just way off, but that's like just a gut reaction. I mean, Rosemary, how many jobs does a, a facility typically support? A blade facility? Yeah, I thought the same thing when I read the number. Was it two sixty or or something? Two hundred. Yeah. And I thought that sounds small. And then I thought, how many people are normally in a factory? Um, and <laughs> I mean. <laughs> I never, I never counted. I never actually asked that question, but I feel like, you know, at, at any time there's, you know, at least a uh, hundred or, or more working in the factory. And so if they're covering three shifts a day, then you would think it would be like quite a few hundred in a, you know, like a medium sized mm-hmm. wind turbine blade factory. So it sounded small to me, but I don't actually have the, <laughs> the figures on hand that could, you know, conclusively say, yes, yes, that's small. Maybe they're starting off with just a single, a single mold, um, a, a single product production line uh, i'm not sure but maybe it will grow if um if the market grows well, yeah it has to grow just because the number of blades that are, they're needed offshore off the united states if they're going for 30 gigawatts <laughs> there's a lot of blades that need to be built and i think from virginia and massachusetts are going through the same, same thing right now where i'm from uh it's all this surrounding jobs that happen so all the machinists that are making all the tooling all the the, the carpenters that are you know setting up the building the facility all the all the all the other electricians and all those sort of people who come in to, to make those things happen uh, provide a lot of jobs. And then obviously the, the surrounding restaurants and hotels and all those pieces, the rental cars, uh, we'll see all that business too. So it's not just the facility itself. It's just, this is surrounding area that, that looking in terms, in terms of jobs, but Rosemary, if, 
if we're growing, the, the, the question for me is, we really haven't stopped on the size of wind turbines. Like we're really ramping up in 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 megawatt machines. If I'm going to build a facility today, is it going to be out of use or, or because the blades are going to get even longer or just keep adding on to the building as, we, as the <laughs> blades get question. longer? Yeah. It is a, it's a big, it's a big issue. And, um, when I was at LM, the main reason for the new factories that were opened was because they simply, yeah, couldn't fit <laughs> fit in the old old factories. They would often. Uh, it was pretty common um, over the last few decades to do extensions to the length of the the factory to fit, um, you know, the new blade lengths. And if you every time you announce the longest blade, um, you know, longer than any that you've got before, you have to figure out which factory you're going to make it in because most of the factories won't be lo- long mm-hmm. enough. But then when they get to a certain size, it's not just the length of the factory that's important, it's the height as well because, you know, these really long blades, if they're, you know, 80 metres plus length, the cord, maximum cord is going to be five plus metres. So you Mm. need to be able to rotate the blade to work on all parts of it. So you need an area that's high enough to do that. Um, So, yeah, they do just get really huge. I don't see people planning very far ahead now um, in terms of longer and wider blades. Like I don't see factories being built that are just way huger than they need to be for the the blade that they're planning. And I think that's partly because it's not it's not so obvious to say where the size of blades is going to stop because um, you know, like we have seen obviously the trend is that blades get longer and longer and longer and longer. And we've all been saying since, you know, the year 2000 or before, however long anyone's been working in the industry, everyone's been like, well, blades are getting so long, it can't go on. And I I know that, you know, some of the um, people I've worked with that have been working in the industry for decades, they're like, yeah, when I started, blades were 12 meters long and we all wondered where it would stop. And we were pretty sure you'd never have a blade that was 20 meters long. Um, And, you know, now here we are well over a hundred. But the fact is that, you know, as you... You scale them, the, you don't get as much extra power as you spend extra in materials to make a blade longer. It's just, you know, the laws of physics, the power scales with the, um, you know, the square of the blade length because the swept area increases with the square and the materials increase with the cube approximately, unless you, um, unless you make uh, technology advances, which, which we have. So it's other factors that are, are causing blades to get longer it's not not about the blade it's about you know having less subsea cables and about having less yeah connections and less less of all of those things and installation um it's all those things and yeah it's worth noting that at any point in time we're at the optimal um blade size you know that's that's the point when you put out a new turbine you figure out what is the absolute cheapest cheapest you know dollars per megawatt hour that we can get out of this thing and then that's that's why they've made it the size that they have so it's not that a bigger bigger turbine would be more optimal um but it may be in the future so yeah i I think it's really hard to predict but i do like everybody in the last 20 years i do think we're close to the (laughs) the longest blade that we're going to get to yeah. I mean, what, are we going to be making kilometre-long blades at some point? I mean, it's just, no, uh, we're not. But, you know, now I feel like that guy in, in 2000 saying you'd never have a 20-metre-long blade. So, you know. 
Yeah, that would be an interesting conversation just to hear what they're planning for the facility, because I'm sure there's some amount of overrun, just like anything else. Like if there's, hey, even if you're making like a, a health club, for example, like I used to own a, a baseball and softball academy and we had to plan for the future. We're like, you know, if this is our absolute minimum, but we could grow to this. What's the balance of like extra usable space we might we might want without bankrupting us and being wasteful? Now, you know, I'm sure they're extrapolating above and beyond what they're currently doing. You know, maybe like, hey, let's build in 60 extra feet, 20 extra meters, um, just of like flex space that we can use for X, Y, and Z now. But if we need to cannibalize it later, we can do that, you know, as Blade. But then obviously that's only going to be to a point, right? They're not going to build a 180 meter long facility when that just might never be useful. So it, I'd be really curious what the, what the plans are. That's actually really good points. Both of you raised just trying to prepare for the future and not build something that you outgrow like a, a hermit crab shell, you know, in just a couple of years. Cause that'd be really unfortunate. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode of the uptime podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and be sure to subscribe to uptime tech news, which you'll find in the show notes of this podcast and Rosemary's YouTube channel, which you will also find in the description or show notes. Thanks again for uh, watching or listening, and we will see you here next week on Uptime. All right, folks, good job. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes.